Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. I was asked by at least three different people in the last two or three weeks an interesting question, and I want to address it just here on Father's Day. I was asked by one young woman another, and two men what I thought was the most important thing for family life since that seems to be one of the things that I think is really a problem in our culture now. And, and, you, and I, I've concluded to keep it simple this way. When man and wife get married and you start having a family, the worst thing that I think you can do is to put the children above each other. Now, there's a tendency, usually either for the man to do it or the woman to do it, have a tendency to put, you know, and, and I'm telling you, folks, that's really a plan for disaster. Husbands should put their wife above the children. Wife could put... Because if those children can see, have that unified front of two working together, putting the Lord first, each other second, the children then can see how it's supposed to work for them. And uh, this one young fellow, it was interesting. He said, you know what? My wife is hanging out with our daughter so much that we never spend any time together. That, that girl is probably, I don't know, freshman, junior in high school, somewhere in there. One of these days, that girl is going to be gone, and who's left? Mama and Papa. And what shocks me is the number of divorces that are taking place once the children are gone. So what I'm saying to you is, I think we can say with a great deal of certainty that the Scripture teaches that love and loyalty to each other should be second only to your love and loyalty to God. Children, I know you may not want to hear it, but you need to be number three for the sake of the solidarity of your home and for the Christian enterprise. Now, I, I wasn't asked to say that to you all. But I may repeat it again. I think it's so important. I was asked to say every once in a while, keep your eye, since this is live streaming stuff, which is way over my head, it is, I'm supposed to every once in a while look at the camera. I probably won't do that very well. I've been practicing looking at you all for 60-some years, and, uh, and it's kind of hard to take my eye off of you. So you people out there in whatever land you call that where you're looking at computers and stuff, why, just forgive me because old dogs, new tricks, you know, all that stuff. Now, the message today that was assigned here because we're going through the Gospel of Luke probably is one of the parables that you all 
have heard many times. It isn't a new thing. And um, it is the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I'm going to read the text down uh, through uh, about five verses or six, and then we'll talk about it if we can. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now the reason they went to the, he, Jesus has them located in the temple is because they lived under a false concept that many of us have bought into. That where you pray is as important as what you say when you pray. They had the idea that if you went to the temple to pray, it carried more weight than if you were out plowing a mule. Now, we bought into that more than you think. I have at times when I was really crushed, I'd come here to the church building, nobody locked the doors, go back in the chapel usually, and, and fall on my knees back there and pound on the floor and all that kind of good stuff for a while. Because for some reason or other, we have in our mind that this is the church. Well, it ain't. People are the church. This is a building. It'll rot down one of these days, rust down, and go away. And we'll talk a little more about that before we're through. Then it goes ahead and said, the Pharisee stood up because then standing with your hands lifted up was the typical way that they prayed in public. We still do that at times when we dismiss a crowd or whatever. We've been influenced by this more than we think. That day when a, a teacher or a rabbi, same word, if he, he ordinarily sat while he taught and the, his students stood around him. If, however... The rabbi stood up. Everybody said, shut up. He's getting ready to say something really important. Praying was standing up because they assumed that in the eyes of God, it was really, really important. So the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. So we know that this isn't a typical prayer. This is a performance. Now be careful, folks. Because people in my racket have a tendency to be, we'll be called on to pray for this, called on to pray for that. Politicians come to see me, would you pray here, would you do that? And if you're not awfully careful, instead of talking to God, you'll be talking to the audience. That's a temptation, it is. So that prayer can become, it can degenerate into a performance is, is a very real temptation. So don't take this lightly. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even this tax collector standing over here. We always compare ourselves to somebody we know worse than we are. I fast twice a week. 
for those who were super righteous and wanted to brag on it, they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays among the Jewish folks. I give a tenth of all I get. That's more than was required by the law. Sometimes I wish you all would do that, but we'll go on from there. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He couldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast, which is often an indication of repentance, and said, God, have mercy on me. Now your text will say, if you look at it, a sinner. The Greek text does not say that. The Greek text, and why they put an A there, I don't know, in the translators, because the Greek text is abundantly clear. It's a the. I am the sinner. Now, he's not the first guy to, to take that position. He figured, of all the sinners on the face of the earth, I must be the worst. And the, and the people in that area probably agreed with him. Then Jesus comments on the two prayers in verse 14. He says, I tell you that this man, the antecedent of this, meaning the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Now, please understand, these are not Christian men. These are Jewish people. They are still under the Old Testament. They're actually during the ministry of Christ because there's a little bit of a different dispensational thing there. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now let's follow the outline a little bit here if we can. The scene we've already established, that's in the temple. Now, what we need to look at probably next is the two participants in the story that Jesus is telling. This is a parable. It's a story. And generally speaking, a parable had one point he was trying to drive home. And here, uh, we'll look at these two people. So let's go on to three where, where we look at the actors. We've got uh, the Pharisee. And so let's take a little time to see exactly who the Pharisees are because that name is thrown around a lot in the New Testament. But if you're not awful careful, you don't really know who they are. The word Pharisee in itself simply means holy ones or separated ones. Now, we can throw that up there if they'll find it because we I actually went to the trouble to try to put that on a doodad. Hey, we live in a wonderful day. Now, you need to know that the Pharisees were a lay movement. We would call that a lay movement. The word laos just means people. And rather than they were not the priests and the Levites. The priests, the high priests were mostly all Sadducees. Secondly, they were a small group with a lot of influence. Only one per, it was estimated that only 1% of the population, which would have been at Jesus' day about 6,000 people, were Pharisees. But they had amazing influence in their culture. The Marxists have taught us one thing. They say that 
if we can have 10% of the, of the population, we can control a country. That's exactly what Lenin did in Russia. Only about 10% of the Bolsheviks, and anyway, they got control of the whole country with no more than 10% of the population. Next, they were not a political party. They didn't give a hoot about politics. They were only concerned about what the Torah taught. And that's where their emphasis was. They were a populist movement, which simply means that uh, they were popular among the common people. But what did the Pharisees believe? Let's look at that for a minute because it's interesting. They believed in the sovereignty of God. Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but not like they did. They believed if a guy was rich, God made him rich. If a guy was poor, God made him poor. Wanted him to be that way. Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I don't believe that God, by his choice, controls every little incident on every life in the world. I do not believe that God gets a guy drunk or as a skunk or high on dope and he crosses the yellow line and he kills a, a family of people. I don't believe that. Because I've, the only way that, that the only restrictions that God has are those that he places on himself. I cannot say, now God, don't you do that. Or God, you do this. I hear some of our Pentecostal brethren every once in a while tell God what to do. I don't hardly believe we're in a position to do that. But I think that, that God has purposely put restrictions on it, limitations on himself. Jesus did that. If you read the second chapter of the book of Philippians, it's called the emptying. Like he emptied himself of, of, of the position that he was in heaven, put on flesh and became a man. He lowered himself to, to, and, and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. I believe that ultimately God will bring history to the conclusion that he wants. And nothing can stop that. He is sovereign to that extent, but he is, I believe that he has purposely put restrictions on himself to give us some free will in order that we can love him. Love requires the freedom to choose. And I love the Lord, and I think I've been given the freedom to choose him over the devil. Now then, they also believed in, in human accountability for both virtue and vice. So they were fairly conservative people when it came to theology. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees who ruled in the temple did not believe in the resurrection. They believed that people were like an old pig. He dies, he's, you know, that's the end of him. They also believed in angels and demons. We do too. They believed in a rigid interpretation of the Torah and tradition. Now the Jews have always leaned heavy on tradition. You remember the song? Tradition. I'm a great singer, so you can tell I'll, I'll get paid, I'll get an increase in my income from that. That was from Fiddler on the Roof, from some of you who don't remember the, the really good play. They looked down their nose at the ignorant and the negligent, and they felt that they were somewhat superior to everybody else. That, too, is a problem for those of us who are fortunate enough 
to be, to have what you would call a good education. We have to be careful with looking down our nose at anybody. Because we're not in a position to do that. So what was the problem here? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. Before we get to that, what was the real problem? Let's look at the tax collectors. If you were to pick a tax collector in the New Testament that you would know best, I'm about to break out in song again, so watch out. It was Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, climbed up in a sycamore tree, the Lord. He wanted to see, right. So, we might make a record of this, I don't know. And anyway, if you were to go to Jericho, even today, because Israel is always prepared for people who come and put on a show. Right in the middle of the old town, there's a great old big tree. Now, 50 years ago, when I went there the first time, uh, you could climb up in that tree and have a picture taken. Now, so many people climbed up in the tree that it doesn't have any bark left on it, and the trees and the limbs have been broken off and so on, so they built a fence around it, and you can just get your picture taken at the base of the trunk now. But they say, well, that's, that's where Zacchaeus was. Yeah, 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 right. That didn't, ha didn't hardly happen. A tax collector got his job from the Romans, and he actually would bid on it. If you've been in a corporation and a job opens up, sometimes you can bid on that job. You could bid on getting a tax collector's job from the Romans. There were many taxes that they collected. They collected real estate taxes. There was a poll tax that they were to collect. You, now, you're familiar with that one because you remember when Mary and Joseph left Nazareth and went to Bethlehem before Jesus was born. They went there to, uh, because Caesar Augustus had said, I, I, I want to collect some poll taxes. And so everybody goes back to their hometown and registers so that we can, you can be taxed. It was a poll tax, what we would have today. Now, the one thing that the, uh, uh, that the Romans didn't require, now, they collected the real estate taxes, they collected the poll taxes. That all went to, to support the, the armies of Rome. What they didn't have was a sales tax, but the tax collectors imposed a sales tax on goods that was being sold or brought into the country and out of the country. And that money went in his pocket. There was a saying in the time of Jesus, that, and I think it's, um, I, I, I could find it if I had to dig it out, uh, among, it's not in the New Testament, but one of the Jewish writers was quoted as saying, an honest tax collector is a starving tax collector, which gives you some insight to how they were viewed by the populace at the same time that Jesus lived here. They were just simply hated and despised by all, equal to thieves and robbers. Now, it, it is interesting. They were expelled from the synagogues. They were not permitted to come. It would be like us out here where you get your temperature taken, having a couple of guys big and nasty like me and wouldn't even let them in the building. They were not allowed. The synagogue was their church building for the Jews. 
They were disqualified by law to be a judge or to be able to, give, to be a witness in a courtroom. They were so bad that the rabbi said that citizens were permitted to lie to tax collectors without impunity. You're permitted to lie to them, which was a violation of their own law. But that's how they were. They were just, in fact, if you were sitting by a roadside asking for alms and a tax collector came around to put some money in your bucket, you were not permitted to take it because the money that a tax collector had taken was considered robbery. It was stolen money. You weren't allowed to take it. Now, these were the two people that Jesus, he, he got the two extremes here and pulled them together. And he makes it abundantly clear, makes it abundantly clear who God listened to. Now, so let's, there, there are in the New Testament barriers to prayer. Obviously, God wasn't listening to the Pharisee, not because he couldn't hear, but because he chose not to. But the New Testament says there are actually barriers to our prayers being answered. Did you know the way you treat your spouse, Peter said, is if you do not treat her right, God will not listen to your prayer? You better think that one over. That's the reason why I started off with the statement. That's one of the reasons I started off with the statement I made early on when we first opened. There are others. One is a lack of faith. Now then, so what is the problem with this super religious guy that really looks good? What's the problem with him? The problem is God doesn't pay much attention to the outward man like you and I can see. If you and I make a judgment on somebody, it's only because of what we can see. God can see things we can't see. God looks at the condition of the what? The heart. Now, when the Bible uses the term heart, he's not talking about the pump in your chest. He's talking, according to the context of Scripture, he's talking of, and I've tried through the years to teach you, the four things, it's one of four different things that the context of Scripture will ref make reference to. He may be making reference to the mind or the intellect. Often that is true. Hebrews 9.12 talks about the mind or the intellect. And sometimes when he mentions the heart, it, the man uh, believes with all of his heart. What's he talking about? He's talking about your mind, the intellect. Secondly, it may be the will. We must will what God wills in order for us to please God. We have to bring our will in line with his will. Not my will, but thine be done. It's also a matter of conscience. I've tried to teach through the years. You cannot carry your Bible with you at work all the time, or you'd be robbing your employer. That's a type of thievery. If you sat and read your Bible all the time when he's paying you to do make widgets or something. But what you can do is you can put the Word of God in your heart. What's that? Your intellect, right? And then you don't violate 
what he's what he what you have in what do you you put the word of God in your heart so that you won't sin against God the scripture says so here's what you do you never violate your conscience there's something silly that goes on that I really don't understand but I've observed it and I know it does the, it's really tough to violate your conscience the first time. The second time, it gets easier. The third time, and pretty soon, your conscience isn't there at all. You just do what you want to. You never violate your conscience. You educate your conscience with the Word of God, and then don't violate your conscience. It's that simple. And the other is emotion. It's one of these four things. It's your intellect, your will, your conscience, or your emotion. Why did I say? Because you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love is, after all, to a degree an emotion, is it not? So when the Bible uses that term, heart, and, and, and what we need to look at here are a few passages of Scripture where Jesus continues to address this problem. If you were to go back to the 15th chapter, well, let's start in the 6th chapter of Matthew. What does it say? Or the 5th chapter, I'm sorry. And, and we're in the Beatitudes. What does it say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart people. How many people do you know who are pure in heart? You go over to the 15th chapter, of the, of the Gospel of Matthew. There's an interesting verse there. At least I, I choose to call it that. Down here in verse 8. Here's what it says. And this Jesus now is quoting from the Old Testament in what I'm getting ready to read from the book of Isaiah. Here's what Jesus quotes in reference to the Pharisees and those who put tradition above the Word of God. He said, These people... Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, he said. This Pharisee was worshiping in vain because what he said sounded good, but it was not an honest expression of his heart. The Bible is really tough on hypocrisy. What you see is what you should get. He said, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Those are those traditions that he's talking about. And all through the Bible, you will find passages of Scripture that deal with this subject. Second chapter of Romans, uh, verses 28 and 29, just to make it short. I put more than that in your outline. Uh, but let's, where he talks about, he said, a Jew is not really a Jew just because he's an Israelite. He's not a part of God's chosen people just because he was born in Israel or has his roots there. Verse 28 says, a man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly. That's what the Pharisee was, right? See what he was on the outside? Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No. A man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. The circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. And it's by the Holy Spirit. Not by a written code. Not by rules. 
And such a praise is not from men, but from God. So if you want praise from God, you better make sure that when you stand before him, kneel before him, fall on your face before him, that what comes out of your mouth is an honest expression of who you really are. And it's not always easy. My wife will say, I, I, I don't always do it, but I make a practice of opening the door of the car for Alice Kay to go and to sit down. And she will say when I reach down to get the handle and pull the door open, are people watching? That's really kind of funny if you think about it for a while. I remember years ago what made, I've mentioned that several times, I'd, I'd often said, you know, people are watching, let me get the door. Actually, when the door is wide open, she can't reach it when she sits down, and so it's meant for something good, but uh, sometimes, I remember years ago, we were eating lunch down at uh, Bob Evans, Uncle Floyd, Benny Baumgartner, myself, I don't know who else, and, 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 uh, and Benny was asked to bless the food we were eating, and he got to the end of this prayer, and Uncle Floyd whispered, Keep praying, Benny. People are watching. Well, there is that temptation, isn't there? Of course, he was trying to be funny, and, and I thought it was funny. But there is that temptation to be performing for people rather than God. And we need to get that straight because you and I will be judged by God by the content of our heart. What was it Martin Luther King said by the people should be judged by the character and not the color of their skin. The principle is the same. Now, this poor guy who was nobody in the eyes of people was honest before God and called himself the sinner. Now, the Apostle Paul did the same thing once. You remember he said, of all the sinners, I'm the chief. That's what this guy's saying here. I'm the chief among sinners. I have no, I, I come before you, God, with absolutely nothing to offer you. I have nothing. In fact, what I have is all bad. And I'm sorry. And he beat his chest in repentance. And God said, under the Old Testament law, this isn't the church. This is the church hasn't begun yet. Pentecost hasn't taken place. God said, I'm listening to this guy because he's real. The result that we get from this is, you know, arrogance is ugly in God's sight and ours too if you're truly a Christian. Humility, and by the way, humility is not a feeling. Miss Frances Capps, who, you know, helped start this church, used to say, oh, Brother Scott, I felt so humbled. I said, that wasn't what she felt. Humility is not a feeling. Humility is who we are and how we act toward others. If we're willing to step down in order to serve someone else, that is the, in the Greek language, there's, it has word pictures. And, and the picture you would have for the humility is someone who is up here by intellect and, and, uh, and position in society, but he steps down to a lower level in order to help somebody. 
That's humility. Refusing to accept the glory that only belongs to God is humility. And then Jesus goes on in this particular text and he then illustrates what he's talking about by, by little children. He's, he says it this way. People also were bringing their babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them and said, get the kids out of here. They felt the same way I feel when I get on an airplane and there are three crying babies. That'll drive you nuts. And they felt the same way, and so they were saying to the parents, get them away from here. But Jesus said, now wait a minute, I need an illustration for what humility really is. So what did he say? Let the little children come to me and don't hold them back. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never get in it. A little child totally dependent on somebody else to survive. These were babies. And he said, when you approach God with that attitude, he'll listen. He'll listen. You come to God, and in your heart, you think God ought to be grateful to have you? He's not listening. Doesn't mean he's deaf. It means he chooses not to listen because the Lord looks upon the heart. We look upon the outward. The final reward, of course, is the kingdom of God. And I've, I've, through, I've, I've looked around and, and thought about, 50, we'll, we'll have been here 50 years in September, on September the 20th. And I look back over those years in my mind, preparing for this morning, this weekend, and, and I was trying to think, who, who fits the category of, of, of that the sinner? And, and adopted that attitude, too. And I came up with one person that most of you don't even, never met. You'd had to have been here a long time to know what I'm talking about. You see, downtown on, I think it was 5th Street, I'm not certain, there was Albrecht's Restaurant, and right next to it was Morgan's Jewelry. And on top of Morgan's Jewelry, Mr. Lewis, Bill Lewis, had his engineering office. And right east, right adjacent to the Albrecht's Restaurant, was a shoe repair shop. And an old guy worked there as a shoe repairman. Wasn't very good at it, but he worked there. And he was a horrible alcoholic. His name was Andy Rhodes. His nickname was Dusty. Andy would fix you, and, and Mr. Lewis used to go down and invite him to, and finally he started coming to church with Bill Lewis. He became a baptized believer, and, and back then occasionally we would take testimonies from the floor. Andy always stood up, and he began his testimony the same way he did it when he was at an AA meeting. The AA, you, first thing you go at an AA meeting, you get up and, and you give your name. You would say, I'm Scott, and I'm an alcoholic. Andy couldn't say alcoholic. He was an alcoholic. He was from the Carolinas. He'd get up and say, I'm just an old alcoholic. 
And at that particular time in the early 70s, drugs were just beginning to be a big problem here. He'd look at the kids and he said, don't end up like me. Stay away from drugs. Stay away from alcohol. Live for the Lord. You know what? His testimony that would last about three minutes, in most cases, did far more good than the sermon we preached because he lived it. Andy later on, because he was a heavy smoker, got cancer, had him in the hospital in Columbus, and they gave him just a short time to live. He came in the office and he said, Brother Scott, he said, do you reckon the church could afford a few dollars to buy me a bus ticket to go back to North Carolina? I haven't seen any of my people for years. I said, I expect we could afford that. But I said, Andy, doesn't it bother you that you come in and ask for stuff all the time? He said, no, Brother Scott, it doesn't bother me because I know it makes people like you feel real good for having done it for me. And you know what? He was right. <laughs> he was right. When he, got, when he finally died, and, and it was really, I bought his last drink, honestly. Now, I, and some, you know, some of the self-righteous Pharisees think I'm going to, who are listening to this think I'm going to hell for it. But early one morning back then, there was a guy, two people, big shots on the radio. On WPAY, it was Zeke, and on WNXT, it was Bill Dawson. Bill Dawson called me, it was 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning, and said, Scott, Andy's here, and he's drunk. And I don't know what to do with him. I got to go on the air in just a few minutes. I called Ernie Kennard, who lived downtown. Ernie went over and picked him up, brought, and then came and got me. And, and, I, and I said, Andy, we need to get you to a drive, because his hands were shaking. He was starting into DTs. And I said, we need to get you to the dry out. And that was where the old hospital was on the hill up here. He, he said, Brother Scott, I need a drink. And, I, and, and, and so we drove out to Vince Tovine's carryout out here where there's a marathon station now. And I said, well, Andy, what do you need? He said, I need just a, a drink of wine because he was a wino. I said, well, what do I ask for when I go in? Because he was shaking bad. He said, my wild Irish rose. You know that's got to be good stuff. It cost 69 cents for the bottle. I took it to out there, and he said, Brother Scott, you're going to, I can't open it. You're going to have, I took the, twisted the lid off, put it in his hands. He put it up there shaking. I'm telling you, before you could count to 10, his hands were solid as rock. It gets to the brain that quick. I didn't know that. He said, now take me to the house, and uh, I'll get my clothing. You can take me to the hospital. That was his last drink. That was his last drink. And then when he died, somebody had given us two burial plots that they didn't use, and he's in one of them. If you all need one, well, I still got one. What I'm telling you is, if there's anybody in the history of this church who was totally dependent upon God's mercy and grace and freely admitted it, it was that old alcoholic. And you and I need to learn we go before God just like he did, as the sinner. And if and when we do, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few little things. I'm going to give you a better job. Well, I'm done. 
Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that you've made a way for us. I thank you for telling us what you expect and how I pray that we can stand before you as those who have a pure heart so we can see you. We ask for your dismissal this morning with a consciousness of your presence as we go about our work this week. We thank you for your written word and your Holy Spirit who helps us understand it. We ask for your continued blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.